This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. From North State Public Radio in Northern California, I'm Jennifer Jewell. Today, we're joined by Genevieve Arnold, Seed Program Manager for the Theodore Payne Foundation for Wildflowers and Native Plants, a nonprofit organization dedicated to the understanding, preservation, and use of California native flora located in the northeast corner of the San Fernando Valley. The foundation preserves the legacy and carries on the work of Theodore Payne, a pioneering Los Angeles nurseryman, horticulturist, and conservationist widely considered to be the father of the native plant movement in California. Jenny has worked with California native plants and seeds for more than a decade. Prior to her position as seed program manager, she served as seed conservation program technician at Rancho Santa Ana Botanic Garden. Her experience with seeds has given her an appreciation for the unique form and beauty of the native garden in all its phases. She loves to hike in our local wilderness areas to observe wildflowers and plants in their natural habitat. Today, she's here to talk with us about our native geophytes, which we might think of generally as our native bulbs. California is home to more than 250 different species of geophytes, many of which are now rare or endangered. This spring, after a winter of closer to normal rainfalls, many of our geophytes are treating us to a particularly spectacular year of bloom. Welcome, Jenny. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So let's start, Jenny, by just defining geophytes for listeners. Okay. So um, geo, from the Greek roots of the word, means earth, and phyte means plant or growth. So a geophyte is a plant that grows in the earth. Um, This term originally came about because a Danish scientist named Christian Ronkow created a system for categorizing plants based on their life form. Since uh, this original system was created, other scientists have modified it, but the the original basis of this classification system has remained. So um, a geophyte is a plant with an underground storage organ. So this organ often takes the form of a bulb, but it can also be a corm or a tuber um, or a rhizome. So this underground storage organ contains reserves of carbohydrates and water, and it helps the plant survive adverse environmental conditions like drought, like we have here in California, or uh, extreme colds, um, fires, um, or uh, periods of uh, long darkness, things like that. Um, So... Because of this underground storage organ that helps the plant survive during a dormant phase, geophytes do tend to be long-lived. They're found in every environmental niche, um, from the tropics to the tundra to wet locations, riparian locations, to desert, to the uh, chaparral and forests of California. So at least up here in Northern California, Jenny, our native geophytes seem to begin their seasonal unfolding in January and run right through the end of fall in some cases. I'm thinking here about our fritillaries, 
Alliums, Iris, Dicolostemas, Tritileas, Brodeas, Calicordus, and now we're starting into lily season. In the places I've visited this year, it has seemed like a particularly amazing year for bloom. Are you noticing this down there, and what are your thoughts on it? Um, I have noticed uh, more abundance in certain species. Um, there's a, a Calicordus plumeri here in Southern California that um, I've seen in greater numbers and have also had reports from colleagues that it's being spotted in uh, more areas around Southern California. Um, additionally, the uh, Chlorogalum pomeridianum, which is the soap root plant or mm-hmm. the soap, soap lily, um, I've also noticed in um, our wildlands and parks has been in greater numbers. Although we didn't get the big El Nino we were hoping for, El Nino season we were hoping for, um, we did get some uh, sort of punctuated big rainstorms that that really soaked. And that's my thought, um, that that's why they're more frequent this year. And and because geophytes are so long-lived and have such a great capacity for longevity when they're basically stored underground uh, during their dormant season that um, they were just kind of waiting for the right circumstances to appear in greater numbers. Describe for us the ways that bulbs reproduce themselves in the wild. Plants that have bulbs, um, roots do develop at the base of a bulb and and produce a plant. Um, A lot of these bulbs produce something called a bulblet, which Mm -hmm. is a small bulb or tuber that you'll see in the brodeas, um, the camas, the dicolostema, the tritileas, and that's basically a smaller bulb that's connected at the base of the parent bulb underground. Um, Other uh, geophytic plants produce something called a bulbil, and this is a small bulb-like structure that can occur in the axle of a leaf where it meets the stem or at uh, the base of a stem. So um, this also can form a new plant. So these are present in some uh, Calicordus species and some Zygodinus. So let me, let me clarify what I thought I understood there. The okay. bulblet would be like a little tiny bulb down underground next to the mother bulb, and a bulbil yeah. is up on the stem on the plant itself. Right, okay. and it can, it, it can occur above ground at the base of the plant, too. Okay, great. Um, yeah. And then they also propagate by seed. Correct. So... A lot of times, if, if you sow a bulb plant um, from seed, it may take three seasons before the plant actually forms an underground bulb. So, you know, they have these two different methods and two different time, timing factors. The bulb seems to be like the long-term method, right, because the, the seed may germinate that, that same next following season after the rains, and the plant will grow up. But each season that it grows up, over time, it forms these bulb structures underground. And some bulb-forming plants actually form what we call a corm. Um, this is similar to a bulb. It's a, round, a rounded storage organ. It's uh, present in a lot of these species, such as lilium. And this is more like a swollen stem base that's covered in scales, scale leaves. And these scales will produce uh, new plants as well. Some of these bulb-forming plants produce what we call droppers. 
This is similar to a bulblet, which again is a small bulb which forms at the base of the larger parent bulb. But droppers are independent of the bulb itself. So they're dropped into the soil and they can form anywhere in the soil where the dropper may have traveled. So this happens in um, Dicoastema and Brodea species. So there you have the um, parent bulb, and then you have droppers that are scattered, you know, in the soil nearby that end up not even being connected <laughs> to the parent plant. Um, in addition, many bulb species have what we call contractile roots, this is a root system that um, expands radially and contracts longitudinal, longitudinally. So what I mean by that is that um, the root system grows out, and then the roots will drop deep. The, the contractile roots will drop down into the soil um, to kind of deposit more bulbs, and then they'll pull back up. So really these geophytes have a pretty amazing range of methods to ensure their survival. That redundancy of their own ways of reproducing is really pretty amazing. Talk about some of the ethnobotanical history about how people have encouraged bulb reproduction and use as well. Um, I'd love to talk about that. Um, the first peoples of California were just really genius land stewards and they were um, land managers. So in the 1700s, 1800s, uh, early 1900s, bulbs were prolific in California. There were fields of bulbs that, that were in existence. And this was because the Native American tribes um, did this land management. And so what they would do was a variety of things. They would... First of all, they applied burning techniques, which would clear ground uh, for their desired species to grow so that they could be harvested. Secondly, they, um, they dug frequently. They would use digging sticks made of um, hardwood, such as a mountain mahogany or from a buckbrush, and they would dig down, and they had a specific method for doing this. Um, once they got, like, uh, the main bulb out um, of the ground, they would then be sure that they were cutting off the, the, um, the bulbils or the droppers or the bulblets so that they would stay in the ground, and this would um, ensure that they would repropagate themselves and multiply. So they weren't taking the entire thing. They were, they were taking just the part of it, the biggest, the best part, the, the most nutritious part, because bulbs were a, a main food source um, at this time in California. Um, packed with nutrition, packed with starches, a lot of them were high in protein. Um, they were known as potatoes, so that, that gives you a, an indication of what a food staple they were. Secondly, um, when they would collect, they would often, because summer was harvest time, a lot of them would be in seed, they would scatter the seeds back in the ground. So they were collecting um, conscientiously, okay, um, and in a way that I like to think of it this way. When you look at a plant in the wild, you're not just looking at it today in the moment. You're also having in your mind what was going on with this plant in the past, 
and what's going to go on with it in the future. And that's what they were doing on a regular basis to um, make this a sustainable practice. So the Native American tribes, they consumed a wide variety of bulb species, um, Dicolostema capitatum or blue dicks, which have a wide distribution all over California, were a primary food source, but they ate um, allium or onion bulbs, chlorogalum or mariposa lily bulbs, um, the, some of the lily bulbs, rhodeas, tritileas. These were all food sources. And um, what they would do after they did these sustainable um, land management collection techniques, they would cook the bulbs um, either on ashes for, that, that were left from cooking fires or, for example, on Santa Cruz Island, they had these large earthen ovens that were like four feet long, maybe three feet wide, where they would build a fire, let it burn out, place the bulbs in, and completely cover it with earth and let them cook that way. And these were communal cooking ovens. So that communal aspect is indicative of what an important uh, food source these uh, geophytes were um, at that time. We're speaking today with Jenny Arnold of the Theodore Payne Foundation, a nonprofit organization located in the northern San Fernando Valley and dedicated to knowledge about and preservation of California's native flora. We're talking today about our many native geophytes, those plants we think of generally as our native bulbs. We've been discussing their general life cycles and historical uses. When we come back from a short break, we'll talk more about best practices for sourcing native bulbs to grow in the home garden and how to care for them there. Stay with us. Welcome back. If you're just joining us, this is Cultivating Place, and I'm Jennifer Jewell. Today we're speaking with Jenny Arnold, Seed Program Manager for the Theodore Payne Foundation, and we're speaking about native bulbs. We began by discussing some of their botanical characteristics, and we'll start now to talk about best practices for sourcing them and growing them in the home garden. Welcome back. So, You've walked us through the basics of how geophytes grow and some of the ways they've been used historically. Talk us through best and most ethical practices for obtaining bulbs for growing in the home garden. Absolutely. This is, this is so important. Um, keeping in mind that, that at the time that these uh, land management practices were being utilized, 
That was a different time. The, there was fewer, the population was not as big as it is now. Um, and actually, at uh, the turn of the 20th century, a severe decline in bull populations was observed. There were several reasons for this. One was the destruction of habitat um, for housing um, and agriculture. When fire suppression techniques, rather than the burning that was done before, fire suppression techniques came into play. Um, and then uh, reductions in the numbers of native animals that co-evolved with these geophytes. Because, again, a lot of... Uh, they would respond to digging, so a lot of the native animals that were, you know, burrowing around, burrowing around in the soil um, made them propagate more as well. Um, and another main reason that they declined was that um, as a result of harvesting for the horticultural trade. So uh, in the early 20th century, um, people were mad for bulbs. And at that time, there were some horticultural collectors who were not doing this sustainably. There was one collector, in fact, who collect thousands, collected thousands of bulbs, um, largely in Northern California. Um, and he sold them all over the world. And there was even one report that at one time, these bulbs were being inserted into post Toasty's cereal boxes as the free prize. So that tells me that they didn't really understand. They were looking at the present and not the future <laughs> when they were doing that. Um, Theodore Payne, he was a horticulturist who represented the crossroads of horticulture and conservation mm -hmm. because in his seed and bulb offerings in uh, 1904 in his first store in downtown L.A., he was using sustainable practices of collecting small amounts from the wild, conscientious ethical collections, and cultivating them, um, you know, in captive conditions to sell, to offer them to the public. Um, and in fact, he uh, landscaped a native garden in 1915 in Exposition Park in South Los Angeles. And among the, the natives that he used, he included alliums, rodeas, trilliums, calicordas. Um, so that's just kind of a background on, on the fact that bull populations are undeniably severely declined in, in California in, in the last century. In addition, there are many species that are actually threatened um, un that range from status of uncommon to, to threatened, to rare, to endangered. Okay. So this brings us to today and, and uh, collection practices for today. My take on this is that a bulb should never be collected from the wild unless the, the one circumstance that I think it's okay is if it's a professional trained botanist who is harvesting a single specimen to create an herbarium specimen for purposes of plant ID and plant classification. Uh, and that collection scenario would always be under permit, uh, never, never rogue, never without permission. So in my mind, there's never a situation where it's okay for a hiker 
to take any bulb from the wild. Never, okay. uh, it's just something that shouldn't be done because these precious geophytes are um, becoming imperiled. So that leaves us with nurseries, nurseries that offer our native bulbs for sale. How do we as gardeners vet and feel confident in the people that are offering bulbs for sale that they have collected with full permission and authority and ethically and that they have grown them on and are offering them in a sustainable manner? What, what are your suggestions for that? Absolutely. So um, in, as an alternative to wild collection, um, an ethical way to obtain these plants, these bulbs and seeds and, and cultivate these things in your home garden is to purchase them from a reliable source. Um, you can always contact uh, any company or business that's offering these resources and ask them, you know, where, what is your policy on how you get these? Here at Theodore Payne, we have a bulb house. This is called the Fred Smith Bulb House. It's a 500-square-foot um, structure named after a volunteer that in the 90s um, really kind of took our bulb program to, to the next level. Um, we have one-by-one-foot square boxes that were built um, by another volunteer that we had who was an ex-board president who... Um, became quite well-versed, quite expert in cultivating California native bulbs and propagating them. And um, so he ran the, the bulb operation after that. So um, they would be planted in these boxes and then, you know, left, let to multiply and then harvesting the bulbs after that and offering those for sale. The way he propagated those bulbs was to start them from seed. Um, there are a lot, a variety of places to obtain uh, bulbs and seeds. You have larger bulb companies such as Telos Rare Bulbs, Brent and Becky's, uh, Vandenberg, Van Anglen. Also, uh, the California Native Plant Society has chapters all up and down California. A lot of these chapters offer um, local yearly plant sales. Um, that's a reliable source. Um, Theodore Payne Foundation, we offer bulbs uh, just in the fall. Uh, the Rancho Santa Ana Botanic Garden in Claremont has an annual fall sale where they offer native bulbs. And these sales are kind of fun because you're not just getting the straight species. There's a really wide variety of garden-adapted, colorful, uh, well-performing cultivars that can be obtained as well. So I'm guessing that if you are interested in hearing about these sales, the best suggestion would be to go to the websites of Theodore Payne or Rancho Santa Ana or your local CNPS chapter and get on their mailing list so that you hear about these things in advance. Give us your suggestions on how to plant them in the home garden and cite them so that they do their best, are not overwatered, are not underwatered, are situated for success? First of all, bulbs do well in ground when they're planted with low-growing perennial shrubs and subshrubs that are like one to two feet tall. So you can plant them with low-growing perennials uh, with native grasses, such as uh, in the wild, they've been seen often with the um, stipopulcra, the purple needle grass, which is our state grass. 
They can also be planted around annual wildflowers. So these uh, companion plantings sort of mimic um, communities where you'd see bulbs in the wild. Um, plant compatibly for water needs. This is a biggie. So going back to these uh, fantastic underground storage organs that help the geophyte survive through its dormancy, most California bulbs go dormant in the summer, in the warm season. They have a short flowering season in spring. So plant compatibly for water needs. Um, if you plant a bulb right next to a plant that you're going to be watering frequently through the warm months, that's not going to work out for the bulb because if it gets too much water when it's dormant, it will just rot out. We don't recommend that you amend your soil. The California native bulbs exist in a wide variety of soil types, um, from clay soils to more well-draining soils. Uh, in the wild, you'll often see them on a slope. So if you have a slope, um, or some of the more dry species, dry loving species you'll see on a slope, if you have a slope, that's great. They're fantastic in raised beds. They're fantastic in containers. So when you're planting a bulb in the ground or in a container, the rule of thumb is to plant the bulb two to three times the depth of its own height. If you're planting bulbs for an end mass effect, you want to plant them one inch apart. Um, if you're planting in containers, the container should be at least eight inches deep due to those contractile roots that will deposit the um, smaller bulblets uh, down into the soil. Uh, you want to use well-drained soil mix in raised beds and containers, either a cactus mix or you can use uh, a mix of like a 40% packaged potting soil for containers that's um, then mixed with 40% river or concrete sand and 20% loam. Particularly with the Calicorda species, a fast-draining uh, or, or, or well-draining soil mix uh, will benefit the bulb. Once you've planted it, you want to water it in immediately and thoroughly, and then you want to let it sit until the first rain comes. Now, in the absence of that subsequent rain, which often does happen, you'll want to water, in general, weekly to every 10 days, depending on your soil type, keeping in mind that if you have clay soil, the soil is going to retain water more and you don't want to overwater and rot out that bulb. So once weekly water, um, you're going to be planting these bulbs in fall, so uh, October, November, you're going to keep it on this watering system through early spring. Uh, once, once, the once the bulb plants have uh, completed flowering, and or are mostly completely brown, then you want to stop the watering um, through the summer until the next rainy season comes. If you have bulbs in a container, it's, it's a lot of fun. It's very easy. Once this dormant season comes, you can just pull the container into your garage or uh, sequester it in a place where it's safe from rodents to let it just sit in there during its dormant season and then Come the following September, October, you can pull that container out again and start the watering regime. Jenny Arnold, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you very much for having me. Jenny Arnold is the seed program manager for the Theodore Payne Foundation, a nonprofit organization based in the San Fernando Valley 
dedicated to the understanding, preservation, and use of California native flora. Thank you so much for joining us. Next week, the conversations continue when we're joined by Anne Mead Daniel, co-founder with her husband of a young nonprofit in the D.C. area entitled Gardens for Heroes. In preparation for the upcoming 4th of July holiday and the many layers of meaning inherent in it, we speak with Anne Mead about the potential for healing and grounding found in home gardens for wounded veterans and their families. Join us. Cultivating Place is a co-production of North State Public Radio and JewelGarden.com. The program is produced by Matt Schultz. For this week's audio archive or to subscribe to the podcast, please visit mynspr.org. For more information, including many photos and a list of good book and website resources about native bulbs from Jenny Arnold, please visit jewelgarden.com. For daily photos and more, follow Cultivating Place on Instagram or Facebook. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell.